welcome to PE Talks Africa, the African Private Equity and Venture Capital Association's podcast. In this series, industry leaders will share their views on the investment landscape in Africa and will discuss latest trends covering fundraising, deal making, value creation and exits across private equity, credit and venture capital. In this episode, hear from Arjuna Costa, managing partner at Floris VC, Tukumbo Ismael, co-founder and managing director at Alithia Capital, Genevieve Sangudi, Strategic Africa Advisor at the Carlyle Group and partner at Alterra Capital Partners, and Mark Stoneham, Portfolio Manager at Development Partners International, as they share how they have supported their portfolio companies and created sustainable value during these uncertain times. The session, moderated by Rashida Sheshi, Partner and Chief People Officer at Africa Foresight Group, is part of AFCA's 2020 Focus Series, hosted in September 2020. Hello everyone, um, welcome to the African Private Equity and Venture Capital Association webinar. Um, with the coronavirus came a lot of uncertainty, especially in the business world. With the slowdown of economic activities, many of us started to question about the future, especially with investment activities. This is also a human problem, is a humanitarian crisis and makes it more important for us to discuss how to continue to increase value, create values and to create jobs for people. And today we have four amazing business leaders to help us navigate this conversation and pr provide solutions to this um, very challenging question. And we have Max Stoneham, the Managing Director of DPI. We also have Genevieve Sugundi, the Managing Director of Carly Group, um, Arjuna Costa, the partner of Flourish VC, and Tukumbo Ishmael, the co-founder and managing director of Alithia Capital. Thank you all. Welcome and, and thank you so much for making the time. We, we don't have a, a lot of time for this. So I'm just going to jump in. So today we're talking about creating value. So I'd like to direct the first question at Genevieve. Um, how do private equity investors in Africa create value during challenging times like this? And what are their priorities in terms of portfolio management, especially with regards to capital allocation. Okay, well, thank you, Rashida, and hello, everyone. So 2020 has been unprecedented in, in so many ways, and um, we've certainly all had to have had to adapt to new realities um, very quickly. So just speaking for the Carlisle Sub-Saharan Africa Fund, which me and my team manage, we have 14 portfolio companies. So the first thing that we did was just take a holistic view of the portfolio, assess risk opportunities, categorized each company, and we looked at things like revenue risk, working capital, liquidity, supply chain, what we really wanted to do was to make sure that every single company got through this crisis. Um, we also try to estimate the length of disruption for each company and the potential EBITDA impact. So that was sort of a triage, if you will. Then certain key initiatives we started to um, undertake. So detailed reforecasting and stress testing, monthly cash flows and the likes. And then very early conversation with banks where relevant, where we had leverage. So even in situations where um, we weren't at risk of immediate covenant breaches, we still try to work with the banks, prepare for the worst and just buy ourselves um, breathing room. Easier to do that before you hit real crisis. 
And then OPEX, OPEX savings. Um, most of our businesses are still founder led and have been in growth mode, right? Most of the investing that we do is for growth. And so it was a major mental and cultural shift to force companies to cut expenses, especially people. That was really the toughest thing that I've had to go through throughout this process. Suppliers is another key area we looked at. So we worked pretty aggressively on just, you know, requesting, negotiating longer payment terms, um, significant discounts, you know, renegotiating lease terms, anything that could be postponed. We made sure we did that. So all of this was defense. And I think we played defense pretty well and, you know, very happy that all of our companies, you know, so far have gotten through the crisis without a single um, need for liquidity injection. And actually, we found that many companies have now found unexpected ways to become more lean and more efficient in the process in ways that they couldn't have imagined um, before until they were forced to. And I've talked about defense. So I just really want to also speak about where we've had the opportunity to play offense. And one company in particular in our portfolio stands out for me. It's a company called SMD. It's a South African-based designer and distributor of branded consumer electronics. So headphones, speakers, laptops, cellular accessories, and the likes. And we distribute our products through large South African retailers. You know, if you guys know SA, it's the macros of the world and discams, et cetera. So you can imagine the calamity that we were facing as South Africa went into a draconian lockdown. I mean, as we were doing sort of our reforecasting, we were thinking this was one of the businesses that was at extreme high risk for significant revenue and EBITDA decline. Um, however, management team, very agile, very entrepreneurial, and they decided to play offense. So we have an office in Shenzhen with 40 employees who previously had been responsible for sourcing, design, quality control. We did all our manufacturing in China, so factory checks. So we already had this infrastructure in China. And honestly, as early as February, I think our management team realized that this crisis was A, going to come to Africa, B, it was going to be deep and it was going to be prolonged. And so what they did was immediately set up a consumer health subsidiary. They repurposed our China team instead of laying them off um, to instead get trained to source all COVID-related health consumables. So masks, gloves, gowns, thermometers, et cetera. We conducted 400 plus factory inspections just to make sure in record time. Um, and then management insisted that air, sea, cargo would have just had significant backlogs. You don't want to do that. So like, you know, giving the board, you know, heart attacks, they actually chartered planes. And within a few weeks, we became the largest supplier of PPE in Southern Africa. So this is a situation where we went from anticipating a 60% decline in EBITDA. And in the first four months of our fiscal year, which started March 1st, um, we have exceeded both revenue and EBITDA targets for the entire year. And now that lockdown restrictions have been eased, our core business is now coming back slowly. And actually, what's the most telling thing here is that we now have a viable and sustainable health consumable business and entirely new business line. So I just wanted to share that example of both, you know, where we play defense first and then where, you know, where in situations where teams have been agile um, with our support have really been able to to win. I, I think that's really interesting, the way you are able to identify ways to repurpose assets and continue to create value for businesses. I didn't mention this in the beginning, but we have um, business leaders from different spectrums when it comes to um, 
um, investments. So um, Genevieve is speaking for the more advanced stages of investment, and we have Arjuna Costa for the more VC end. And I would like to know what he thinks and he, if how much his answer would differ from Genevieve, given um, the beginner stage of investment he, he he's coming from. Sheila. Um, so at Flourish Ventures, we're a mission-oriented investment fund, and we focus exclusively on entrepreneurs who are passionate about helping people achieve financial health and financial prosperity. So as you can imagine, this is both a humanitarian crisis and a public health crisis, but it has significant implications on becoming an economic crisis. Um, right, and so this was all of the mission that the, our portfolio companies were undertaking was exacerbated and highlighted by the need to help people uh, survive these times. So there was a tremendous amount of pressure on the companies and the CEOs. Um, like Genevieve said, I think all good investors did exactly the playbook that Genevieve laid out, right? Go deep into each company, look at the operational, the financial metrics, shore up balance sheets where you need, cut costs where you need. Um, I'll focus on a slightly different aspect of this, which is uh, what we were doing for uh, the CEOs and the leadership teams. It's tough and lonely being a CEO and a founder. And that feeling is exacerbated during a crisis like this one. Um, and, and to Genevieve's point, we were fortunate to be a global firm and we were seeing the impacts of uh, the pandemic on our portfolio in other markets like uh, Latin America and Southeast Asia and the US before it hit the African continent. So we were able to start to react and start to help our African uh, uh, portfolio companies early. We recognized very early the importance of peer networks, especially around a common theme. And so maybe I'll go a little deeper into what that meant. We brought together a mini portfolio of our companies that were all providing credit across the emerging markets. And there was no sense of competition between these companies because they were operating in different geographies with the same ultimate purpose. So what we did was organize a series of calls where the CEOs were able to share what they were seeing in each of their markets and what they were what steps they were taking to manage their portfolios. So what this did was create a little peer network where people were open to sharing, people were learning best practices from what each other was doing. And that created a sense of we're in this together, we'll get through this together. Um, so as an investor, we were in the center of this conversation, but the learning was actually happening between companies. And that's really the most powerful way that companies get through a crisis was to, to see what their what their compatriots were doing, learn from each other. We then went a level deeper and brought in experts that would help companies both at, at a group level and then go deeper on a one-on-one -on -one level. So what were the two big things that credit-oriented companies were facing on the continent and elsewhere? One was to think about risk management in a very different setting because of the pandemic. And the second thing was to think about all of the models and the data science that they built up over the years, was that data relevant in a market that was changing so fast with so much uncertainty? So we, we um, 
brought in two consultants that we'd worked with before. One was a former CFO of a big bank, and the other one was the chief data scientist of an analytics company that worked with this with this subset of portfolio companies going deeper one-on-one, -on -one, really trying to understand the elements of risk and try to help them model out <clears throat> what the scenarios might play out under the pandemic and how to work through it. So again, uh, quickly summarizing, think about the portfolio level, think about operations, think about finances, then think about themes that you're seeing as an investor and work with portfolio companies going deep into solving actual problems very tangibly, both with expertise that we can bring as an investor, what they can share with each other if there's commonality across portfolios, and then with the help of outside experts. Absolutely. Uh, hopefully that gives you a flavor of the types of things that investors were bringing to their portfolio companies. Yeah. And being able to share an experience is always important and powerful. Just wanted to ask Mike um, Stoneham very quickly if you could add anything to this very quickly. No, with, with great pleasure. Thank you. I'd humbly qualify your very kind introduction. So I, I lead the, the value add, um, so our portfolio team at, uh, at DPI. And look, um, I think it's important in the context that the lived experience of this has been very different in different parts of the continent. And obviously that has a big bearing on how that value gets created, you know, at the country level, at the sector level, at each phase of the pandemic, it's been a very different world. If you're looking at, um, mm -hmm. you know, Egypt, if you're looking at Morocco, if you're looking at Kenya, Nigeria, um, South Africa. So obviously, you know, we have across our three funds, you know, around 1.6 billion um, under management, and that's around that's 18 companies. It's a very, it's been a very, very different experience to try and kind of draw out some of the commonalities. I love Genevieve's idea of playing defense. So I won't, but she's said that, you know, very well, you know, looking after your people, your customers, a resilient supply chain, a fortress balance sheet. I'd maybe, you know, I think on the other side, the uh, Genevieve's point about playing offense. Look, I think there has to be an ingoing expectation. If you're a market leader in turbulent times, you'll be gaining share. You know, even if you're year over year top line, if that's, you know, flat down, you know, there's, you know, have that mindset. I think there's been a tremendous, and to Arjuna's point, a tremendous leadership mindset as well. You know, leading people, that mentality of you lead people through the process. Um, look, clearly on the playing offense side, digital has been the big theme. You know, I, you know, companies on our portfolio have, you know, our Nigerian QSR business tripled its um, uh, online fulfillment. Our, you know, Egyptian consumer electronics business has rapidly you know, scaled its uh, third party marketplace. Um, for example, the uh, university went to pretty much 100% digital. So there's been a lot of digital and that's an ongoing story. You know, there's companies that are still in the process of pretty much completely retooling some of their core processes. So I think creating value in these times, obviously digital is a big theme. Obviously that's a, a work in progress. I might throw in some other ideas as well, right? There's, you know, this is a great time to be out and getting talent. Yeah, you know, there's been a few hires made during the crisis that I'm very excited to see now how they get on. This is a buyer's market for talent, let's be clear. You know, if this yeah. is a good time. Um, bolt on opportunities, you know, there are clearly, you know, those opportunities begin to emerge. Um, and look, I, I suppose you certainly need to caveat all this that, you know, there's sometimes almost an unconscious bias in reporting on what has been a terrible humanitarian crisis on the continent, but 
for that said, the underlying opportunity is still there. You know, thank God the reported mortality, you know, of the continent right now is lower than some of the major, you know, European countries. Not at all to underestimate what a terrible time it has been. At the same time, the story is is still there. And I think, you know, there's a, a broader value to be created here, right? As we come out the other side of this crisis, the things the continent will need so desperately, you know, continuing to support regional integration, regional trade flows, tech investment, education investment, healthcare investment, you know, that's a very real source of value from the continent that I think we as an industry have a big role in creating. I, I like that you mentioned technology because that's another area we would like to look mm. into, how to leverage technology to create value. Um, but yourself and Arjuna mentioned the fact that this is a humanitarian and, uh, and social crisis. So this brings me to my second question um, to Kumbo. How has the pandemic changed the agenda for ESG policies and what will that look like after COVID-19, assuming we have an after COVID-19? Well, we will do. Thank you, Rashida. Um, you know, for me and uh, for my colleagues and uh, in, within my firm and without uh, and within um, the African private equity ecosystem, what we're seeing is a greater prominence now of ESG and impact. Um, it, it was kind of like the poor cousin to the mainstreaming of to the mainstream uh, investing, but now we're seeing that ESG and impact themselves are being mainstreamed. And there are a couple of reasons for that. Obviously, with the pandemic, all of us have been affected. Um, and if you just look, you know, what is ESG, environmental, social and governance? As private equity investors, governance has always been a key area for us to add value to our companies, um, shore up the governance. But there's been a greater spotlight now on, you know, what is the diversity within that governance? What kind of diversity are we seeing in teams? Uh, my colleagues earlier mentioned about needing to pivot and be offensive and uh, with innovation. Well, greater innovation comes with greater diversity. So you're seeing more prominence around that area and understanding that for, for, for you to have management teams that can weather this kind of storm, A, they need to be diverse. You need to have effective decision making. Also, on the social side, what we're seeing is that we now we if you didn't before you now know that it's not just about the financial outcomes right and social is cutting across a number of areas whether that's social infrastructure within our countries i mean we uh, mark just mentioned about the fact that we've been able to contain within the african continent well thank god because really the social infrastructure it has been shown that there's been underinvestment with um the crisis people saw how much was lacking, not just in the health infrastructure, but also in the educational infrastructure and all the things that needed to happen there. So it's bringing greater prominence, but there's also the social side within companies. And uh, like we, like um, Arjuna mentioned earlier, putting that spotlight on the management team and in the well-being of that team and the leaders, and therefore also for your employees, there's been a great shift. We, we all have this distributed workforces now, you know, how do you make sure you can still remain cohesive and um, at the same time be productive? And that's not just within our investment um, firms, but also in the portfolio companies that we're working with. How do we ensure that that social infrastructure within those firms 
still enables us to have the superior performance that we're looking for. And environmental, I mean, that speaks for itself in terms of the climate issues and even its direct um, impact on the pandemic itself and the, the, the connections there, the interrelated nat nature of that. So the ESG is getting greater prominence and impact, you know, being intentional with your investment to have the impact so that you have um, greater access to better and affordable healthcare for, uh, for the masses, education, financial services, the financial well-being of um, the masses, and really in terms of looking at the inclusivity of our economies and how we're um, investing for inclusivity. So for us, we're seeing that with our strategy on, um, you know, investing for better access to essential services and the sort of gender smart lens for better governance, innovation and decision making, we're seeing greater prominence. What does that mean post COVID? Well, for us, it means that as we're seeing the mainstreaming of, of ESG, people are now really beginning to take more seriously the fact that we do need standardization of metrics. We do need standardization of frameworks. Um, because if we, if we really want to be purposeful and see how we're making the change from an ESG perspective and an impact perspective, we need to be able to report on that better. Companies need to be able to see better how they're making that change and how they can track it and how they can think about strategies as they go into firms to ensure that there's, there's this impact coming out of it. So it's a greater prominence. And um, you mentioned earlier about technology. We've seen technology play a, a greater role in us being able to meet those um, targets around ESG and impact because suddenly better access to health, education, financial services is definitely leveraging on technology for uh, uh, a mass output. And for us with our portfolio companies, what we've seen is that for those that were already digitally connected, they've had an uplift from uh, the pandemic. And for uh -huh. those that weren't, they've begun to see how they can be more innovative and spread their wings. So it's a, it's a greater uplift. Um, it's unfortunate that we've had the crisis, but on the other side, it's really um, catapulted and accelerated some of the progress that we expected and wanted to see for an inclusive economy. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I was also, we also talked about, you mentioned frameworks in helping um, portfolio companies build on some of these um, value that we're trying to create. And I wanted to bring Mark Stoneham back in again. Um, so how do we build frameworks that, um, that are created for the purpose of value creation that can be driven across investors' portfolio, be for cost management or human, human capital mm -hmm. management? How do we help build these frameworks? Sure. And so look, um, what I think became clear early, early in the pandemic is that sitting in the middle and, you know, having the view from all these different companies, all of whom were innovating, doing great things, is that you can have a lot of value if you sit in the middle and share this. You know, Arjuna put it beautifully, leadership is lonely and it's leadership is especially lonely. In a, in, a, in a crisis. So some of the things we did was, you know, we, we took a view very early on that we help ourselves by helping everyone. So we put a lot of effort into creating and refreshing a checklist 
of the sort of granularity underneath the sort of playing offense defense points we talked about earlier. We tried to bring in all of that, all of the best bits of everything that was happening in our portfolio. We made that public on our website. We had a bunch of webinars telling people about it. Um, you know, then that framework has been, it's, it's still on the website, has been extremely useful. I think on the slightly, you know, the more challenging side of the coin, you know, obviously there were some retrenchments around the around the portfolio. I mean, thankfully of the, you know, 42,000, you know, staff of the different portfolio companies, it was sort of one, two percent. But obviously even that in those individuals' lives is, um, especially now is also making sure that's done properly, respectfully in line with um, the relevant guidelines. You know, that was uh, a framework we, uh, our ESG team worked very hard on making sure was standardized, followed. You know, we do a lot of this around governance, for example. You know, we've, we've found a, a more standardized approach, a, a toolkit around that can get to maturity um, very fast. And a number of other things, you know, that you can bring an approach, I might throw it, you know, a lot of what we've done around incentives, you know, sometimes operational excellence. You know, there's a lot more of this can, that, that can be done. But if I've taken one thing out of the last few months, it, it really is a way of having a lot of impact um, at scale to capture, you know, capture and share the best practices within and across your portfolio. The other thing that we've done, slightly inspired, you know, by this sort of AFCA style is all the way through having quite regular calls with all our CEOs and their leadership teams focusing on, on different topics. And, you know, that could be the sharing of best practices. It could be some of the, 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 the hot button themes around things like digital. And, you know, increasingly it was, you know, getting really noted experts and epidemiologists on the line to get a really solid, reliable source of truth that cut through all, all, all the noise. And that's certainly been very helpful as well. Thank you, Matt. Uh, Tacoma, how does this differ for you um, coming from the ECN? Well, and private equity. Um, well, for us, similar, similar in terms of the frameworks, um, what has been particularly helpful for us is that we have a gender toolkit that we use for looking at investments as we go into them on our gender smart funds. And so being able to be purposeful again and say, look, this is what takes us from being uh, gender neutral to gender proactive and therefore gender superior. And these are the steps that you need to take because it has enabled us to think about how our founders in those companies mm -hmm. were trying to drive that um, better governance, better decision making with the diverse teams to be able to see what the progressive steps are. And that has also actually um, motivated us um, at Alithea to think about how do we create a toolkit for board diversity and with the boardroom Africa we have um, launched something called the Africa Board Diversity Charter, where we're provi providing toolkits to boards to be able to think about how they can bring in those diverse voice, um, voices. So similar to what Mark said, but you know, really thinking about having a playbook to be able to move forward and be focused on the objectives. Thank you, thank you. Um, I want to move on a little bit. So the role of uh, workforce management and human capital management is taking a more central role in portfolio management more than before. Um, and Arjuna, I'm directing this, this one to you. How can funds create value with focus on human capital? Thanks, Rashida. Um, I think all of the other speakers have touched on this in some way, but 
let me mm-hmm. take the lens of being an early stage investor, uh, right? So in, in really startups and companies at the beginning of their growth journey. In these ventures, there's a greater focus on the founding team and most acutely on the founder or the CEO, um, right? And so, so a lot of our efforts was focused in the initial part on helping those CEOs come through the crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things this... Um, crisis did with all the lockdowns and the work from home orders was it blurred the boundaries between work and home. And we found a lot of our leaders working, um, you know, just morning to night, trying to both fix the external aspects of the business, you know, talking to customers, clients, making sure technology was working, but then being the go-to person for their teams. Right, the teams look to them for leadership, and the stress started playing out quite a bit. And this is at a time when people are trying to stretch cash as much as possible. Some CEOs and leaders were postponing salaries. Um, you had to have very difficult conversations, as I think Mark might have mentioned, to reduce uh, the workforce. So this is when, as an investor, it gets. Uh, quite sensitive, right? How do you build trust with the CEOs such that they can show vulnerability to us as investors, often board members, because they can't show that vulnerability to their teams, right? The teams are looking to them to be the strength in the company to say that we're going to get through this or everything's going to be okay. On the other hand, as an investor, they are very sensitive to us feeling like our investments are doing okay. So it's hard to get that trust to show vulnerability. And it doesn't work all the time, but for, for a small group of CEOs, we were able to, as board members, be there just as, as a place they could go to and talk about the challenges of working through this. Um, another aspect, again, I, I go back to this idea of peer networks. So we created peer executive coaching circles. We brought in, external facilitators in who are experts at this, and then brought small subgroups of portfolio company CEOs in a peer group where they had a, had a facilitator, but they were able to talk through some of the personal elements of dealing with this crisis with a, in a small, familiar setting. We went one level deeper. We helped get uh, the CEOs, executive coaches. We connected them to experts, and we provided subsidies for coaching sessions because we recognize the need for these CEOs and founders and senior managers to have some outlet where they can talk about the challenges they were facing. Um, We then held a series of webinars and learning sessions on topics such as um, how do you build resilience uh, to help your employees handle anxiety? How do you communicate difficult messages uh, to, to the team? So we took themes that were relevant across the portfolio that were very specific to a time of crisis from a people side and then helped bring in these outside experts. I'll touch on one other aspect of uh, people and team, which is something we often overlook, which is suddenly this idea of working from home exposed companies to new levels of data security and privacy issues. And given that all of our portfolio companies are in the financial services space, they were often sitting on sensitive customer data. 
right? And now you have a distributed workforce working from home, often with unprotected internet providers, issues like that. So this remote working brought on by COVID exposed companies to new risks. Again, this was an area where we as an investor didn't have specific expertise, but we looked for and identified a consulting company that specifically uh, specialized in helping teams in remote working environments. So we brought them in. Again, we did it so one to many, had the expert meet with a number of teams, and then go one to one and fix very specific problems. So um, different aspects of the human capital and the workforce management, right? One from a leadership perspective, one from a communications and team perspective, and then from the infrastructure that allows you to manage a remote workforce. Now, I think the systems in place are stronger. Hopefully, we are slowly opening up and going back to working uh, from an office over time. But some of these elements were really critical um, to take some of the pressures off the leadership at this moment in time. Well, thank you, Arjuna, for hitting on that point. It's something that's often overlooked. We know with coronavirus came a lot of stress for leaders and employees alike. Um, what people often praise the idea of working from home, but we know that people are actually working harder than ever. I mentioned earlier as a joke that now everyone knows where to find you. So what that means is that the lines are blurred between your personal life and your work life. The term of work type um, work life balance has been um, somewhat eradicated, and so the stress levels are quite high. So thank you so much for mentioning that. I think it's something we all need to think about. Um, Another thing that has been very prominent in this conversation is technology. Um, Takumbo, I've often pulled you in to, to speak from the VC side, but you also have the private equity side. And I was hoping you could tell us more about what you think, how um, we can support our, our portfolio with adoption of technology to create value, especially with these new times. Yeah, thanks. Um, the first thing I'll say is that um, in these times, what I've heard uh, people immediately jump to when they think about sort of the leveraging of technology is, oh, we need to create new products and services that we can whiz out over, you know, a techn technological infrastructure. Um, but what, I'm, what I also say to people is that, well, we first of all also need to look within the firms, within our portfolio companies and say, you know, to improve productivity, which has been laid bare by, us living at work or working from home, whichever one you want to say, is that if you don't have a good, robust um, infrastructure within within the company itself, productivity is going to, to suffer. And, and we've seen that. So we've seen that people are taking more time to think about the internal aspect. And so, so that's one area. But really, obviously, with, with the pandemic, what we've seen is that Actually, we need to accelerate how we can now as companies, how our portfolio companies can go out and reach their customers better and get their products out there. And because a key part of our strategy with our um, access fund is that we're, provide, we're enabling access to essential goods and services for the masses, we found that with the financial services, just like Arjuna, technology has already been playing a key role in making that happen. It's in the more traditional products and services 
that needs delivery um, that, of phys physical goods, that we're seeing that we're needing to help portfolio companies think through that. Luckily, one of our portfolio companies who's in the logistics area and was particularly focused on the movement of people found that actually with this crisis, by creating a technology that enabled them to match their drivers with people and um, with, the, with um, SMEs that are looking to deliver and leverage logistics platform, suddenly they had a new app that was enabling people to find courier bike um, as they needed them. So, you know, it's, it's that aspect of how do you improve your internal um, infrastructure to improve your productivity? How do you create new products and services as well? Um, so there's a continuum. And what we found is a variety between our different portfolio companies, but it's helping them to see that, you know, you don't just jump out there and panic and just buy any old technology, but think about, you know, how is technology going to improve your business? How is it going to help with your OPEX management? How is it going to help with your revenue growth? And so, yeah, that's how we've helped um, work in that and helping people see that technology is the tail and it shouldn't be wagging the dog, but really should be put to good use. I agree. I agree. Um, Genfi, you want to add anything to that? Sure. And, you know, my colleagues have already touched um, on some of the points I want to make. I think, look, uh, the biggest way we've helped our companies remote work preparedness. Um, and Arjuna really uh, uh, emphasizes, and I agree with him completely. And I think just this quickly having to work from home was essentially a stress test of our communication systems, wow. our disaster recovery systems, our bandwidth, our IT security. And I think I found that it, this was a particularly acute challenge in founder-run companies where they were just used to command control structures you know, in person, et cetera, and we've all had to adapt. And this has really accelerated um, the need for all of our companies, and some of them obviously were further ahead than others, but just to establish robust systems and processes that now just can enable more, not just remote work, but just different ways of working. So just reimagining um, our workforce, this has sort of accelerated that and brought it to the fore um, of our value creation initiatives. I would say another thing that we have seen is just the trade-off um, between automation, employment, employee safety. So one of our companies, healthcare company manufacturing business, um, you know, we make critical life-saving drugs. So even in East Africa, so even with the lockdown, we were just so critical. So we had to operate. It was really important to the countries in which we serve that we were able to produce at or greater than um, sort of our previous capacity. But it was typically a a pretty dense workplace, right? And, you know, with management, we had been considering, you know, we, we employ a lot of people and, you know, sort of trade-offs between automation versus, you know, just keeping the high employment. But now we were forced to make these decisions in terms of just workplace density. We physically could not have that many people on the packing line. And so we had to find a way to still produce our IV fluids and, and, and other sort of drugs um, without that level of employee density. So this just forced sort of some tough decisions around automation. And then lastly, I would say um, customer engagement. So a lot of our businesses, very sales oriented, um, driven by sort of the founder relationships that have been built over 20 plus years. 
And we've had to sort of force them to think about innovative ways to sell, you know, whether it's through online conferences, informational webinars. Um, and if you think even about our healthcare business, a big part of how we would get, you know, new products in the market is medical reps would market products to doctors, right? And so that became a thing. Um, and we sort of had to, okay, how do we reorient our marketing such that we can do this um, via Zoom? So it sort of just taught us how to think a bit more creatively about still going to market, still, you know, uh, um, hitting our business objectives, but just adapting and adopting technology in order to help us um, do that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we've heard about how to prioritize technology if you really want to create value and exceed in this area and how to rethink our traditional um, ways of doing business when it comes to use of technology. Mark, do you want to share your experience um, quickly on this one? Yeah, sure. So look, the, the, the line I'm sure people have heard is, you know, who, who led your digital transformation? Was it your CEO, your CTO or COVID-19? Um, it, it, has, it has certainly had a, a galvanizing effect. I'll take one case study that I think talks into the, the bigger point of how we as funds can and must, frankly, support you know, our portfolio companies on adopting technologies. So, you know, our Nigerian QSR, anyone who's in Nigeria or Ghana would know Chicken Republic. Um, it's a business very close to, to my heart. You know, at the beginning of the crisis, the MD... Um, us up and said, look, you know, we, we we know we've got to scale up our delivery fast. Um, oh, and, and by the way, our one of our pre-existing partners is as uh, you know uh, decided to to stay home in the crisis. Great, what do we do? So, you know, we and this is where I think a phone can can bring a lot, right? So we were able through the network to bring the right operating exec who'd done this in Europe to help us set a strategy. You know, we were able to make sure we got the five-star treatment from one of the, you know, performance partners in the market to partner with them at scale very quickly. You know, able to use, and we have, we've got, a, you know, some in-house skills around, you know, coaching the team around, you know, everything it takes to rapidly scale an e-com business all the way through from the more technical end of, you know, getting the UI, UX right, making sure your experience is good, your performance is good. Um, you know, net result, uh, three times growth, right, year over year on the, on the fulfillment channel. Um, you know, other I could you know touch on, on on other examples. There's a lot of that that you know we can and should be doing at the, at the company level to help our company scale up the the channel. Look, the other thing I'd, I'd throw in, and you know, fully agreeing with the, the points around remote doing remote working safe and well that came up. Look, the other one at the house level is good quality portfolio data. Is is moving from you know having a really reliable single source of truth on monthly quarterly numbers, especially in the face of growing LP expectation and that is moving from you know nice to have to absolute hygiene and it you know the, the the last few months have been a good spur to you know really embedding that as well thank you thank you mark um we were slightly behind time so very quickly i'm directing this one at genevieve to harvest or to extend Ah, good one. Um, <laughs> I think, you know, it depends. I think fundamentally, you know, like we've all said, first, we had to make sure our businesses are strong. You know, we had to make sure, you know, sort of robust balance sheet, et cetera. So look, fundamentally, 
So exits in Africa in general have not been easy, right? We're all seasoned investors on the continent. I think it's something that has been improving, but certainly COVID has not helped. But fundamentally, I still believe if you build good companies that have proven to be resilient, even through a prolonged crisis like what we're going through, you will and can secure a good exit. Now, the question is just around timing. So for my firm, the reality is that several companies that we had primed for exit in 2020 just won't happen. In some situations, it's either because you've had a dip in EBITDA and because you fundamentally believe that you're going to come out of that because it's not fundamental to the business, it's because if it's retail, it's because the stores would literally shut down and you still believe in the medium term thesis, then you're not going to sell, you know, on a lower EBITDA number. And, you know, it's just really hard to agree on what the appropriate sort of COVID adjustments should be. So in that instance, you probably will have to hold for an extra 12 to 18 months. And I truly hope that is all that it is. And then I think, you know, even when you have some really good businesses that did not have sort of high level COVID impact, I think there's just less capital coming in to Africa at this time. And for me, for us, for our firm, especially given the size of our investments, probably our average ticket size is $50 million. So if you're, and we are typically control investors. So you can imagine the capital that would need to secure a good exit. So I think there's also just what's the world looking like and looking like for Africa at the moment. So what we've actually done, A, we've you know, focused on the portfolio, but also been opportunistic. So where there are really good M&A opportunities for our exit portfolio companies, we're taking advantage of that. A lot of our businesses are market leaders. So those ones have done well through this crisis. And as a result, you know, there are some weaker competitors that who were previously not open for a merger or a takeover that now absolutely we get to be selective about doing sort of that kind of M&A. So yeah, exits will continue to be a challenge, but we continue to have a, you know, reasonable, positive, medium-term outlook. Yeah. And Arjun, how does that look like for Formula N? Um, I'll touch on two related themes, uh, Rashida. One is something I think Genevieve brought up early on, which is moving from playing defense to playing offense, right? Does, mm -hmm. does, a, does a crisis like this create new opportunities? We've got three companies in Nigeria, two of which we've actually co-invested with Takumbo and her, her fund, uh, Paga and Lydia, and a third company we've invested in called Predictus. All three of them in the have been aggressively looking at outside markets because, because at a time when everybody is retreating, they saw opportunity to, to spread beyond the, the African shores, which these companies are moving into Eastern Europe, into Latin America, into Asia. Right? So, so some companies that feel like they've got a solid base are actually moving and looking ahead. Now, that that makes the asset more attractive, but it probably extends the time to when we would think of an exit. Um, and I'll touch on one exit that we've actually uh, seen through during this pandemic. And I have never met uh, the buyer in person. So this is a company called MicroInsure. It operates in Kenya, Tanzania, and Ghana, uh, among other markets in Asia. Uh, they're, and they're basically an insurance intermediary for micro insurance. Um, we backed a management buyout uh, a year and a half ago. So this was an unusual situation where we were a control investor. Um, and what we realized was the company needed to be partnered with somebody who had a balance sheet, so who could carry insurance risk beyond being an intermediary. So in the midst of this crisis, 
through contacts of the CEO, we brokered a, a merger of three companies. Microinsure is the intermediary across the emerging markets, uh, a balance sheet carrier, and a third company that specialized in using AI and, and machine learning analytics just for insurance claims. So we created in the in the course of a four-month period a three-way merger to create what we are hoping is an end-to-end digital platform just for microinsurance across the globe. Uh, very interesting to negotiate on Zoom. Uh, never had that feeling of you know one-on-one building a rapport with the other, you know, the CEO of the of the other companies. Uh, legal was done entirely on Zoom. The lawyers never met each other, sat in a room and hashed out, um, you know, different legal terms. So we are getting used to different ways of doing things. The question is, uh, you know, what will we, you know, how will we revert back to our old patterns once the pandemic passes? Um, but it it does show that you can you can make things happen. Yeah, Th- thank you, Arjuna. Um, if any if anyone in the audience has a, any question, this is the time. But as we continue to wait, uh, I think this is a very interesting question, and I would also like to hear uh, Mark's view on this: whether to exit, mm-hmm. um, harvest, or, or to extend, <coughs> given the coronavirus pandemic. Yeah. No, so, so, so look, and again, every, every every story is different, right? You know, there will be companies on the portfolio that have, you know, come through uh, at or above challenging budgets, you know, and I, I think it's quite market dependent, right? And it's it's always hard, you know, you, if you come from the perspective of a country that's had a hard lockdown to understand that, for example, in, in Egypt, where the consumer of confidence returned that bit quicker. So, you know, we've got Egyptian portfolio companies that are, you know, well above well, well above budget and, 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 and flying. And obviously that's been an easier conversation. Um, I think uh, obviously your questions are going to be around valuation, around process and around preparation. Um, valuation, you know, Nirvana is achieving this famous um, IBIT DAC. You know, can you can you normalize out, you know, the the, the, the impact from you know uh, April May from COVID right now obviously if if you've got a good run rate recovery yeah sure you can you can make a highly rational case if you have not yet seen the run rate recovery then it's much harder to 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 tell that story you know equally from a process point of view if you have a strength of you know if you had a process that had started if you'd had investors who've been able to get on the ground see the assets meet the meet the management team you're at a much better place for getting a process underway than um, than if it's just beginning, you know, travel is opening, you know, but, you know, still, if you wanted to bring a bunch of guys from the UK to Nigeria, they'd still have to spend at least 21 days between the two um, quarantining. So, you know, where you can, I'd say things like VDD become that bit more important, you know, when it's, you know, that bit um, harder to get guys um, on the ground. But, you know, for, for all that said, we've all, as to Arjun, uh, you know, Arjuna's point, we've all, done things on zoom we would not have believed possible you know a year ago Uh, so we have some very healthy exit processes very lively ones underway um you know we've been able to close some stuff um and there's some very good sort of bolt-on type opportunities in there as well where we're progressing you know further than you know anyone would have thought you know before all all this happened so look it's it's a challenging environment and i think in some particular cases it is going to be it is it is making life tough um, that said, you know, there's always a market for good companies. Yes, yes. 
it's amazing how fast we've been able to adapt to the new situation. Absolutely. Um, I do have a question from an audience. The question in my mind relates to turbulence in meat post-COVID employment environment for portfolio company execs who may be displaced because their company is forced to wind down. The backdrop impact on CEO behavior. Um, Tacoma, do you want to take this one? Well, um, if if I understand the question, it's, you know, what do those CEOs do? Look, exactly. uh, yeah, everybody understands that there has been COVID and um, it has had an impact and um, there's been outsized negative impact as well as outsized positive. If you fall on the negative side of the spectrum, that doesn't mean all is lost because um, there is experience from that negativity and possible collapse as the person asked the question uh, said. So it really is about the circumstance of what's happened there. What are the lessons you can bring out of that? Um, and if you are thinking about going on to, to be a serial entrepreneur and start something else, I expect that those lessons will be valuable and um, help you to create something um, that could weather the storm a bit more. And even if you sought to maybe join up or collaborate with an existing enterprise, uh, you've learned some stuff about business resilience and what not to do and um, how to, to navigate and possibly how to reimagine how you pivot um, so that you don't um, have to completely uh, fold up. I'm sure that cash management and liquidity issues will come into play there. So I would say all is not lost and uh, there's some diamonds that you can bring out from that rough to uh, proceed forward um, onto something else. So long as you can articulate and really have learned something from that uh, lesson. And Rashida, if I may just quickly add to, to, to Kumbo's point, I think in our markets in particular, that is why it's so important that during this time of crisis, A, our boards are really active, right? Such that, yes, I mean, CEOs are human beings, and of course their behavior will be impacted by how they think this will affect their personal situations. But that's why as private equity investors, um, and you know, hopefully the boards that we've built would have paid a lot more close attention to behaviors <laughs> at this point and to the management of the business. I think that is a critical part about our value creation. Um, so that it's not just up to the CEO, right? And therefore we will be able to very closely monitor the entire executive management team and whether their response is adequate. And if it's not, and then what the board and shareholders can do to ensure that it is for the survival of the business because it impacts all of the employees and all of the stakeholders. So it's not even just about the CEO. Yes. Yeah, and that raises an interesting point because uh, there are CEOs or founders that are walking around without boards and are sort of one-man bands. And so the importance of the boards comes into play there as well. Having that presence um, of your coach and mentor through the boards is, is important. Yeah, I, I think support could not be more um, more important during times like this. Well, well thank you so much, everyone, um, to our panelists, Arjuna, Takumbo, Mike, Genevieve, Thank you for your time. Um, this has been a very valuable, insightful, and a great learning experience for all, for all of us. Thank you for listening. To find out more about the African Private Equity and Venture Capital Association, please visit avca-africa.org.